0: Hello and welcome to a Fixing Healthcare podcast, Breaking the Rules. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Corr. I'm also host of the Popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the two best-selling healthcare books, Mistreated and Uncaring. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can go visit his website,
1: robertperlmd.com. For this holiday season, we're going to give listeners a special treat. In addition to our usual programs, we're going to replay a few episodes from season one of Fixing Healthcare. Our guests in season one took on the challenge of offering their plans to make medicine 20% better in quality, 20% lower in cost, 20% more accessible and 20% more satisfying for both physicians and patients. My hope in replaying these ideas is to help listeners once again realize how much could be done to transform American healthcare and improve people's lives. And simultaneously, help them recognize how far we are from delivering the excellence in healthcare that Americans want, need, and deserve. Over the past four years, medical costs have continued to soar. Life expectancy has decreased. Access has become more challenging and burnout has become an epidemic. I believe the fundamental challenge is the lack of healthcare leadership and that will be the problem season eight of Fixing Healthcare will tackle starting in January of 2023. Today's episode will feature Ian Morrison, a healthcare futurist and internationally renowned author. I'm confident you'll enjoy this program. For 40 years, our
0: nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system. No one has succeeded yet. We need a hero. Our guests are the top leaders and thinkers in healthcare.
1: This show's format is simple. Our guests will have 10 minutes to present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems Then I will probe deeply based on my experience as a physician and healthcare CEO. I'll scrutinize the plan, pose questions, challenge our guests, and help our listeners separate real solutions from hype. Then Jeremy will dive in from the patient's perspective ensuring their concerns are addressed, making certain the concepts are clear for listeners, and helping to translate any medical jargon we may have used into normal conversational language. Unlike many other healthcare shows, we are not interested in hearing about a pilot project that worked in one location or a new device that a company simply wants to promote. We are searching for truly disruptive change, not just a few minor tweaks.
0: Our guest today is the healthcare futurist, Ian Morrison. Ian is an internationally known author, consultant, and futurist specializing in long-term forecasting and planning with particular emphasis on healthcare and the changing business environment. He is the president emeritus of the Institute for the Future or IFTF and chair of IFTF's health advisory panel. He is a founding partner in Strategic Health Perspectives, a joint venture between Harris Interactive and the Harvard School of Public Health's Department of Health Policy and Management. Ian is the author of the best selling books Healthcare in the New Millennium, Vision, Values, and Leadership, and The Second Curb Managing the Velocity of Change. Ian, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much for having
1: me. Ian, consider yourself an applicant for the job of leader of American healthcare. You're being hired due to your experience and reputation as a visionary. You're being hired because after decades of talking about the unaffordability of healthcare coverage and nearly 20 years of lamenting lagging quality and over 100,000 deaths nationally each year from preventable medical error, our country is ready to make a change. As I told the audience, we're not interested in small incremental fixes or simply trade offs among cost, quality, and service. But instead, we believe that disruption is possible, and you, Ian Morrison, are the right person to make it happen. The deliverables are significant in size and scope, but unless we can achieve this level of improvement, we don't believe over the next five to 10 years that the American people will be willing to move forward. We'd like you to provide a plan to achieve the following. One. Increase life expectancy in the US from the last amongst the 11 most industrialized nations at least to the middle of the pack. Increase quality outcomes as publicly reported by organizations like the National Quality Assurance Committee, the NCQA, by at least 20%. Decrease cost by 20% on federally reported data. Improve service and convenience by 20% on patient satisfaction surveys. And improve professional satisfaction for clinicians by at least 20%. You'll have 10 minutes or so to outline the system of healthcare you believe is capable of achieving all of these outcomes and the steps you will recommend that we take as a nation to get there. Ian, I can't wait to hear your plan.
2: Well, thanks, Robbie, and thank you for having me. Um, I I think it's exciting to be offered a job uh, like this because I've never had a real job in my life, so it would be a breakthrough moment. My mother would be very proud. But let me just say before I dive in, and I think this is a wonderful thought experiment, but I would say that the starting point I would like to take is that perhaps if we certainly, I mean, I'm a Scottish-Canadian-Californian, right? Um, If you take an international perspective, it may be that the solution set that we strive to describe here. Uh, might be culturally unavailable to us. Um, And I say that because I think all health systems are a, a function of the values of the culture. And we stand alone in the US, I think, compared to most of the developed world in the sense that we have not come to a consensus on universality. I think we're moving in that direction. We don't have the same attitudes on the role of government. We believe more in markets and competition than almost anyone else in healthcare. And we're more enamored of new technology than almost any other country. Uh, And we're kind of extremely resistant to anything that smells like rationing. And we're less interested in social solidarity, if you like, than other countries. And I think that those value differences are really incredibly important and are some of the impediments, I think, to moving forward. Having said that, I take on the challenge and I'll 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 try and briefly describe what I think the best we can do. And I'm sort of reminded, even though I'm Scottish, I've spent a bit of time in Ireland and I'm reminded of the old Irish joke about uh the American landing at Shannon Airport and asking the first Irishman he runs into, How do I get to Donegal? And the guy goes, Well, sir, it would be better if you weren't starting from here. And and I think that's true in American healthcare the noble goals you've set out of improving quality and reducing cost, it would be better if we weren't starting from here in the sense that through historical accident, we have a healthcare system that has this weird set of funding mechanisms, uh, including a very large role for self-insured employers, which I think is part of the thing that makes us unique. So having said all that, let me cut to the chase and, and briefly describe what I think might be a feasible solution set that would get to the goals you talk about. And I'll give you a sort of quick description of what I think that solution set might be. Um, and then maybe we can dive down into some of the component parts, the, the five goals, if you like. And I think, Robbie, you're gonna see this as eerily similar to your own work. I've learned a lot from you over the years, and, and certainly I think your mistreated book nails many of the principles that you know, would be included in my sort of vision of how to solve the problem. But I think the short version is this. I would say that our best hope moving forward is to migrate American healthcare to a system I would put under the label of Medicare Advantage for All, which has a couple of components, it tries to reconcile these different values with regard to competition and the role of government. Uh, but mandates that everybody is in the system and everyone is covered. And I think some of your previous guests, like Don Berwick, pointed to this. I think it is potentially politically sellable to develop a system around the concept of Medicare Advantage for All. And what that would necessitate is migrating and building on the growth of integrated delivery systems, providing some kind of global budget framework from the top down setting perhaps targets at the state level for spending not to exceed GDP per capita targets, much as they've done in Massachusetts on a voluntary basis. Preserve as a migratory path, a public option to migrate people from uh, existing programs into uh, a Medicare Advantage for All program. Insist on capitation or at least two-sided risk as the prevalent payment mechanism to these systems. Be prepared to allocate the residual uninsured if there is such a thing, if we cannot get over the line an individual mandate that's sustainable. And and I would say that a fallback mechanism is to allocate residual uninsured populations to these integrated systems, perhaps on a lottery basis, And then I think one of the big question marks is to migrate the self-insured employers over time into this system. And I think it's important not to shock the system. I know you don't want incremental solutions, but I, I would argue that the biggest challenge we have in American healthcare is getting from where we are to a better future. It's that migratory path that's important. And I think if we did that, if we really created a system of Medicare Advantage for all we would go a long way of meeting the kind of performance criteria uh, that you laid out uh, as the challenge for this job. Uh, In terms of life expectancy, it is remarkable how poorly performing we are. Um, I think it's partly our priority setting. Uh, We don't do the things that would lift up the bottom of the life expectancy tables, simple things like universal primary care, um, and access to generic drugs that you would think would be a starting point to bring people up from the bottom. The other thing we don't do is eradicate some of the major causes of early death, like gun violence. I mean, there was a disturbing new article came out over the, the last couple of weeks in the New England Journal, basically showing that gun violence was the second leading cause of death amongst children, only behind motor vehicle accidents, and yet we don't really do anything about that major uh, factor in premature death. And we have this unbelievable uh, opioid epidemic, which many people, economists and physicians alike, believe is driven by diseases of despair, having to do with sort of the lost uh, nirvana of the American dream. And I think there are sort of economic and social policy solutions there that are going to be much more effective than medical care. But I do think the life expectancy issue can be greatly ameliorated by at least having a healthcare system that covers everybody and takes away the stress of knowing that uh, if you get sick, it's not going to bankrupt you. And I do think uh, linking to universal coverage as a, as a sort of starting point is an important piece of of that life expectancy issue. In terms of quality, I think we have to be rigorous in managing quality without it being a burden on the providers. And I think, again, it's about priority setting of doing the right things that we know have an impact and try and make them ubiquitous throughout the system. And I think it's, it's the inappropriate variation in medical practice that still is one of the sources of poor performance in terms of quality. In terms of cost, this is a tricky one because I was always trained that healthcare costs equals healthcare incomes, and if you were really serious about reducing costs, you'd have to insist that somebody's income was going to go down. It's not true in total. I mean, you can migrate a system uh, so that nobody's income goes down, provided you keep it in line with GDP growth. And I think realistically, that's the goal we should be trying to attain, uh, because I do think there are a lot of unmet medical needs in the system still. So. That cost one is a tricky one, and we can come back to that perhaps in conversation. I think in terms of service and convenience, it is no doubt that particularly for people who are seriously ill, the system fails in its coordination and performance. And I think we we pace it a lip service to patient centricity. But I do think that when you have systems uh, like the system you led at Kaiser. Uh, who are under a budget constraint or a capitation constraint or a prepayment constraint, and they have a lot of tools and technologies available to them, they can improve service, they can uh, redesign care delivery so that patients uh, receive better outcomes uh, at lower cost. And finally, I think on on the issue of provider satisfaction, there's no doubt, certainly I've done surveys over the years as you have, Showing that you know the majority of doctors feel burned out, feel you know in some senses alienated, uh, uh, and, and that their work is not valued. Perhaps burnout is not the real term; it might be demoralization. And I do think that providing systems with control, where the physicians, as you said in your book, uh, lead the organization. I'm not 100 percent convinced you have to be a doctor, but I think it sure helps um, if you're a clinician leading large organizations, and I think trying to uh, encourage colleagues to transform in the name of improving care for patients is a professional motivation, and these organizations need to be professionally led with that kind of ethos. So let, let me stop there and say that, in my view, the best we can hope for is sort of Medicare Advantage for All as a framework of payment and coverage that encourages integrated systems, to provide high quality care under some kind of budget constraint. And I think a national conversation on values and priorities needs to be part of that solution set. It can't just be uh, somebody from the top down showing PowerPoint. We actually have to bring the public along in this journey of transformation.
1: Ian, thank you very much for your plan. Medicare Advantage for All is not an approach that any of our other guests in season one have talked about. For listeners who might not be certain what Medicare Advantage is, let me offer the following very brief explanation. Traditional Medicare is a fee-for-service approach that anytime a patient sees a physician, the physician submits a bill and it is paid based upon a preset price list. And similarly, every time a patient comes into a hospital, the hospital is reimbursed. The more you do, the more you get paid. The more procedures you do, the more you get paid, the more often you get seen. The more often the physician gets paid, the more often you get hospitalized, the more often the hospital receives reimbursement. Medicare Advantage is completely different. It is a Capitated system in which an organization, an integrated delivery system, is paid a set fee per year that is based upon the age of the patients that they take care of, because a 90 year old requires far more care than a 70 year old. And number two, the overall risk of that population, meaning the diseases that it has. A patients with diabetes need more care than patients who are in good health without diabetes or heart failure or other types of chronic illness. The incentives in Medicare Advantage, as you have outlined, are to keep people healthy and that the reimbursement goes up for those who provide superior quality and greater satisfaction and down for those who do procedures unnecessarily because they're not going to get reimbursed simply based upon the volume that is offered, particularly in the context of value not being created. The question I have for you, Ian, though, is how do we get from where we are now to where we need to go Intrinsic in a Medicare Advantage approach is that you need to right-size the delivery system, often having more primary care than in America today on a percentage basis, and fewer specialists, having more centers of excellence, and fewer general, small hospitals. How do you see us moving, Ian, from the approach of today from the quilt type multiple fabric approach of today to one that is unified in a medicare advantage type structure
2: right no and i think that's the the key to the challenge here is how do you get from here to there as the irish joke you know lays out i as you know robbie i i trained in in canada in health policy and health economics and I sort of observed firsthand you know, the good and the evil of the Canadian system. Um, I mean, one thing I learned in, in my 30 odd years in healthcare of, of about relative comparisons with other countries is that when it comes to the cost part, the big difference is not in so much the, I mean, most other countries get more doctor visits, get more hospital visits. The big difference is price, right? Price and incomes behind that. And as you allude to, The real difference is the the actual technical content of care is somewhat different. Um, Most other countries have a much, much higher attention to primary care compared to the U.S., where you know we're crudely 60-40 specialty to primary, whereas everyone else is 60-40 the other way around. Now, I think over time, you can migrate to a different mix. I mean, that's the good news in the sense that if you are prepared to lay this path forward, you could migrate the supply of physicians uh, to, you know, to increase primary care and decrease emphasis on specialty care. The problem I see, though, however, is that we've got, I mean, I I spoke to a leading academic medical center uh, a month ago, and every uh, leading academic medical center in California is full, you know, on an inpatient basis. We don't have a lot of sort of unused capacity. And it's partly uh, for the reasons that, that we've talked about, which is that that we don't prioritize the basic primary care stuff and prevent people from being in the hospital in the first place. So I think there are some real challenges, but I would say that you, if you change the payment system over time, people can redesign and redeploy assets incrementally to come in line with a system that is more akin to dominance of primary care over specialty care and and the kind of relative priorities that might make sense.
1: I know you well remember the congressional battles over the sustainable growth rate, the SGR, and the inability of the federal government to actually force the healthcare system to limit the increase in cost at the Medicare level to GDP. Why do you think it will be different this time?
2: Well, I think uh, it, it, that that's a very good point. And you know, I think if you look at the the examples where this has been done, again, if I could, uh, could draw an international comparisons, i mean and 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 I think this is the core of the challenge. One of the things that's different about the u s compared to other countries, almost every other health system in the world is what I call a balloon-in-the-box and uh, system. In other words, if you think about healthcare as a giant balloon, what we tend to do in the U.S. is squeeze on the balloon in one area and it pops out somewhere else. What they do in other countries is they put the balloon in a box and they sit on the box, right? So even though it's a fee-for-service system in Canada for physicians, there are budget constraints on the hospitals so that they can't pop out And expend a lot of money. And there are also limits on where physicians can do certain things. And I think it's more of a top down constraint. That's true in Germany, it's true in Switzerland. Uh, The vehicle for that top down constraint is different. So, to get to your point, how is it going to be different this time? Um, I would argue that necessity is the mother of invention here. And I think you see examples of it. Take Massachusetts, who were the early pioneer of universal coverage, migrated to uh, focus on the cost issue and have had this cost containment commission for the last few years where they're voluntarily monitoring uh, health spending in the state vis-a-vis state GDP per capita. And and they set some arbitrary target of three and a half or whatever percent. And I was at a meeting of the Massachusetts Health Plan Association with all patting themselves in the back. As I pointed out to them, though, you know, Massachusetts is probably the highest per capita cost of any known corner of the universe. So it's it's fine to do budget control from the top down when your budgets are enormous. But I do think we're getting to the point where we're going to have to consider slowing the rate of growth even further just because of the fiscal pressure it puts on the federal budget in the long run. And this is not Obamacare. This is Medicare primarily. So, I mean, the short answer of why is it different this time? uh, Because it has to be. Because I believe, actually, that there's a lot of unmet medical need. I mean, I think we have 80 million baby boomers who are going through total body breakdown and death and dying and aging in place simultaneously, and half of them have no money. I don't think I don't see how that works out real well unless we radically change the way we pay for healthcare, particularly for older generations, and uh, the way we deliver care and services for those folks. So I think necessity might be the reason why we finally have to pay attention.
1: So Ian, I'm not quite sure what a futurist is. How they differ from being a seer? but I'd like to at least use the notion that futurists who don't look to the past are likely to repeat the same mistakes going forward. The accountable care organizations were supposed to do many of the things that you describe in these integrated medical group organizations. What we know is that they did increase quality a little bit, but they failed to lower cost. How do you see this being different going forward than what's happened over the past decade?
2: Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a very good point, Robbie. And by the way, my definition of a futurist is a, an economist who couldn't handle the calculus. <laughs> you know, I'm in the sweeping generalization business and have been for a very long time. But yeah, no, and I, I think it's absolutely appropriate to point to, you know, a, a little bit of humility uh, on the future side. I, I would say that uh, when the ACOs were framed, I was a little bit skeptical I think, let me put the positive spin on it. I thought they were training wheels for capitation is the term I used. They were sort of ways to get somewhat disorganized, disintegrated systems, at least on a path of accountability. Uh, I thought the weakness, the prim- there were a number of weaknesses, but the primary weakness was the fact that there was really no incentive for consumers uh, to to change their behavior or or be engaged with this transformation. I think your previous guests, like David Feinberg and others, I think pointed to the very important notion of uh, transformation, not only involving care delivery, but engagement with patients. And I think that's why, you know, I came to, to the U.S. In, in 1985 and met Alan Enhoven shortly thereafter. And even though I was trained as a sort of single-payer advocate, I became... Uh, increasingly aware that Alan uh, and Owen probably was the American who had figured it out th- the earliest in terms of what was consistent with American values. And that's this notion of managed competition in the sense of consumers should have some choice between the uh, or among these integrated delivery systems. And there should be some consequences to it. And it shouldn't be as you can flip over whenever you want unless you're prepared to pay for that escape valve in terms of an added payment or flexibility payment. And that's kind of analogous to what the Australians do in some other countries. But I do believe you're absolutely right. We, If you look objectively at, at what ACOs have done, they've been underwhelming in their ability to both reduce costs and improve quality, even though probably the preponderance of evidence is, They've done a little bit better on quality than on cost. But I always say to the critics, compared to what? Compared to doing nothing? I'm enthusiastic and encouraging of the ACO movement, but I do think it needs to be migrated to something that looks a lot more like uh, the Entovian nirvana, if I can use that term, that Alan once laid out.
1: We certainly know that uh, there is probably 30% of the things that people do add little or no value in terms of measuring life expectancy, quality of life. We know that there are better ways to do things in worse ways, and we don't differentiate that in our payment scheme today. How do you see a national solution addressing the individual physician's personally seen, self-given right to do whatever he or she believes best, even when the science says they are wrong? Uh, I think
2: that is one of the $64,000 questions in healthcare and medicine. And I'm not a clinician, but I've spent a good deal of my career, probably 10 years in an academic medical center, trotting at the heels of a department chair in pathology uh, while I was working on my doctorate as as a researcher. And so I've had exposure through that experience and and the work I've done with you and others over the last 25, 30 years to learn a little bit about the medical mind. I've come to the belief, and by the way, when I started my career, one of the things we did was we were looking at within the same institution, use of laboratory tests for the same diagnosis. Uh, This is in Canada, Vancouver general in the, in the early eighties. And there was a threefold variation in the utilization of services within the same institution. You amplify that across, across states, and, and we know the well-traveled data on, uh, from the Dartmouth Atlas uh, that, that you alluded to in terms of massive variation. So to cut to the chase, what would you do about it? I believe that the solution here is good data, good science – Coupled to what I would call shoulder-to-shoulder medicine. I mean, I've been impressed, whether it be at Kaiser Permanente or you look at Healthcare Partners, Bob Margolis's group, or you look at large integrated delivery systems like Mayo or Cleveland Clinic, that when clinicians with good science and good data are confronted with that variation, they can be persuaded if it's in the right interests of the patient to migrate behavior to something that's higher performing. Now, that's all within the caveat of making sure that the economics of all of that line up. Uh, And often in our current system, the economics don't line up. Unnecessary or marginally indicated stents done at a high price in our facility is actually the, the lifeblood of a lot of these institutions who are not at risk financially. And so I think getting the alignment of payment and values of clinicians is critical. Uh, but it's it's not easy. And I don't think, I think this is where we fail in the American context. I don't think you can do that by fiat by the federal government. I think it has to be an institutionally, professionally led set of initiatives, but that is supported by a a standardized payment system and rules of engagement so that clinicians are given incentives to consider minimization of, of variation and maximization of output.
1: The solutions you're describing and the one we asked you to do is a rational approach. The alternative is that major change will come through chaotic disruption, as it has done in almost every other industry. Put on your futurist hat now. And look at, is the real change going to come through some kind of organized system as you've described? Or do you think it actually will come in a much more chaotic, true disruption?
2: I agree with the premise that real transformation of industries tends to come from the outside. I mean, I wrote a book more than 25 years ago now called The Second Curve, which was about change in business generally. It wasn't just about healthcare. And at that time, You know, the first curve is the old business, the second curve is the new business that's radically different from the first. And the argument I made in 1995 or 96 when the book was published, it was written in 95, published in 96, was that the combination of three forces, the new technologies like the internet, you know, increasing consumerization and globalization, those three forces in combination were gonna challenge every industry. And healthcare has been late to that. I do think we're seeing signs and signals of disruption uh, of the classic second curve or, or disruptive innovation sense that Clayton Christensen talked about. And I do think that's happening in healthcare. But I also, maybe I'm just getting old and cranky, but I also point to these young upstart disruptors that the American healthcare system is larger than the entire Italian economy and about as well organized, right? So... When you say you're going to disrupt healthcare, it's like saying you're going to disrupt Italy. I mean, good luck with that. The scale is just mind blowing. Now, having said that, I do think there are, you know, as somebody who's tracked the sort of trends in the business for a long time, we are seeing a point now with digital technologies, with clinical technologies, with genomic medicine that will probably force the hand of these traditional delivery models that I've sort of bet the farm on in my responses so far. There there is no doubt that we are on the cusp of the confluence of these technologies coming together to be real, to be actionable, to be scalable, and I think done right and done with the willing cooperation of these existing incumbent delivery systems we could have a very good outcome. In other words, we could harness the power of these disruptors. But I have to say, in the second curve work, I found it very difficult to find successful incumbents who transformed themselves. Uh, It's not a very common phenomenon. And it's much, much easier to be the upstart, to be the Uber, than it is to be a taxi company. Trying to struggle to change. And I think that may be, unfortunately, what happens in healthcare that these disruptors find a way to succeed for themselves, but in the process, it may not necessarily lead us to the best future. And, and the reason I say that is I think the disruptive forces, on the one hand, are likely in the initial stages to be additive uh, rather than substitutive. And in other words, that we'll be creating a lot of things at the margin which are good and which may help consumers, but they're not going to fundamentally alter the way we're doing things uh, in the traditional system. And I worry a little bit about that. And I'm thinking of specific examples like, you know, retail clinics and telemedicine being additive rather than substitutive, uh, as an example. But I, I really do believe historically. We're at an inflection point in the availability of these tools, technologies, and business models that might allow us to make very big differences in the way care is delivered. I would prefer they were harnessed by existing actors to improve the performance of the system rather than cause those existing actors to fail, and we have, we have to deal with the consequences of those failures.
0: Rural health in America presents a unique set of challenges, um, such as attracting the right talent, access. I mean, in a lot of these areas, you still have many homes that still don't even really have access to true high-speed Internet. In your plan, how would you improve rural health?
2: Rural health in America is a major issue. Uh, We have a big country. There are a lot of states, you go to Kansas, and I forget the exact numbers, but something like two-thirds of the hospitals in Kansas are critical access hospitals, and they have occupancy of between one and two patients per day, average daily census. So there are a lot of institutions and a lot of parts of the country, about 20% of Americans live in so called rural areas and big geographies in states like Montana and Nebraska and Kansas and Colorado and, and Maine and you know I've spoken and been in all of those states. Here's what I say. I was trained as in geography with my original discipline and I understand economic base theory. The last thing you want to say to a community hospital that's struggling in rural America is we're going to close you down, right? Because you close that place down It's the last thing keeping that community going from an economic and cultural and social point of view. So it is the lifeblood of the community. So I always start when I'm asked about by trustees of rural hospitals at the Kansas Hospital Association, let's say. And people ask me that question. I say, let me start by saying, I don't think you should close the hospital. But I think you may have to transform it and repurpose it and redesign it. And I think one of the things we need to, carve out in a national policy is a different way of paying for rural health care. I think Alan Enthoven thought this through 20 odd years ago when he was asked about managed competition. I think what you do is you basically provide a block of money, a capitated payment for a delivery system and require that everybody participate through that regional authority to provide services. That's one model. Another model is to insist that there is a larger system partner, sponsor, parent uh, who is willing to provide telehealth and other kinds of support. So kind of what the Mayo Clinic's done in the upper Midwest. So I think there are solutions available, but you've got to start by saying to people, you need to change because what we're doing right now is not working well.
0: In the current political landscape in America, When healthcare is discussed, you have many on the left and far left who reference and even idolize a lot of the health systems in uh, places like Scandinavia or Canada. And then on the right and far right, you have these same healthcare systems that are, that are for lack of a better word, demonized for increased wait times, lack of choice, and things like that. And saying a system like that would never work in the United States, especially with how everything already is now. What are your thoughts on those two sides? And uh, where does your opinion lie?
2: So the, uh, you know, if you look at sort of US versus other health systems, and and you mentioned Scandinavia, Canada, you know, the, the, the Benelux countries, Holland, Belgium, and so forth. As, as sort of different types of models. Look, I, I have come to believe that every healthcare system in the world sucks in its own unique way, right? It goes back to where we started talking about value differences. They're all ugly compromises around a trade-off of, of what I think is a value equation of quality of access and security of benefits divided by cost, right? And they all suck. There is no perfect health system. The people on the left are enamored with, whether it be Scandinavia or Canada, the whole single pair. And there's a number of threads in that. One is the they like the fact that there is no role for for-profit medicine. Uh, they like the fact that everybody's covered. And they like the performance profile of the aggregate measures, right? But they probably wouldn't like the waiting times or the rationing or the, uh, some of the responsiveness issues I mean I one of my dear friends, a former editor of the British Medical Journal, just had his a uh, major eye surgery on Christmas Eve and you know despite he didn't let them know he's a former editor of the British Medical Journal. he's a doctor uh, but he was at the most distinguished teaching hospital in London and turned up at seven in the morning. They didn't actually do the procedure till like two in the afternoon. He was fine with that. that's how the Brits are you know our national sport is queuing. But I think a lot of Americans would have trouble with it. On the other side, uh, the right wing demonized this. uh, Without uh, Very few people on the right, I think, have ever experienced Canadian healthcare. I mean, uh, I have family members getting care up there. And you'd be hard pressed to notice the difference between Stanford and Vancouver General inside the hospital. Uh, It's not the dark satanic mills. I mean, they're fancy and they're well equipped. So there are trade-offs in all of these systems. And I think the left-wing, I will would say, are here's, a, here's another way to think about it. Repeal and replace was a slogan without a real clear policy. I think single-payer is a, is a slogan without a real clear policy right now. I try to articulate one version of uh, a future, which is Medicare Advantage for All, which is sort of a more nuanced compromise position, I think that's more politically feasible. But I think the problem is if you get into this, everybody in Canada has great health care versus everyone in Canada has horrible health care, you're missing the point. What do we do in America, given we're Americans? Uh, We're not going to get rid of all the Americans and replace them with Canadians, although that might be probably the easiest way to get a single-payer system.
1: Now I want you to put solely your futurist hat on. It's 10 years from today... Tell me, what is the American healthcare system?
2: I ran an organization for many years where we did 10-year forecasts for 30 years, um, and, and it's kind of fun to go back. And I always reminded my colleagues that, that we had a sort of discipline, which is if you're going to go 10 years forward, ask yourself the question, what's different from 10 years ago? We're, we're at start of 2019. Um, what's different since 2009? I mean, it's sort of Obamacare the iPhone and Trump. So the question is, what's going to be different within a 10-year time horizon? I think the reality we're going to be dealing with 10 years from now is the absolute peak of the baby boom moving through the medical care system. Peak of the baby boom, roughly 1957. Um, So do the math. It's right in that sweet spot of 2029, 2030 when we're at the sort of maximum demographic effect. And we will have done one of two things. We will either have anticipated that better and have a system where we use high technology to keep people aging in place with tremendous support, where we've made investments in uh, social determinants of health, where we have a system of universal coverage All the way through, which is sustainable politically and financially because it's done on a bipartisan basis. And we will have built the kind of delivery redesign into our ongoing health system that incorporates new technology effectively and swiftly at scale. That's the vision I hope we have. If we don't get on this, quickly, because it takes a long time to build that. If we don't get momentum around this job that we all have a part of or applying for, if we don't go after it, then I think we're in a very ugly place where some people at the top end of the income distribution will do just fine, but a large swath of Americans will be underserved. And we will probably be in a malaise of life expectancy for a very long time, where the widening gap between long life and uh, of high quality and those living in despair will widen. So I I hope it's not that dark scenario, and I would uh, believe. I mean Churchill was reputedly gave the quote, although I don't think he actually did it, saying Americans could be relied upon to do the right thing after exhausting every other alternative. I do actually believe in that. I'm an optimist at heart. And I think the fact that you and other leaders are having these conversations is encouraging to me. And I do believe there can be a bipartisan, sustainable, long-term agreement that combines the kind of values that that Americans have with what we know about how health systems work effectively. So I'm hopeful. I'm still plugging away. I think uh, 10 years from now, it's going to it's going to be sorted, but it will only be sorted if we get together and, and have these conversations at scale.
0: So you talked about your 10-year prediction, um, but I'm curious. So what single aspect of change in healthcare are you most excited about in that 10 years? And what single aspect are you most fearful about?
2: Oh, that's a that's a really interesting question that most that the aspect most I think I think we have within our sights the ability to provide reassurance to all Americans that there is a basic floor below which no American falls i think notwithstanding repeal and replace i really do think the recent elections and the path forward will reaffirm that there is a consensus that everybody should be at least provided the assurance that they will have coverage. I think that's what I still maintain is worth fighting for as a sort of human right, as Don Burwick said in one of your previous podcasts. So I, I, I still maintain that. That's what I'm most excited about. What I'm most fearful of is that we will shoot ourselves in the foot in the sense that our own self-interest and silos of optimizing for, whether it be the pharma industry or the hospital industry or physicians or technology companies, that we will fail to seize the opportunity. I think one of the big differences between the US and other countries, a lot of other countries that view healthcare as a service, a bit like fire protection. I mean, so it's, it's sort of like what I worry about the most is that we fail to see the common good here, that we're all in it together. And I think Don Berwick made the same point in a previous podcast, that that's the danger, is that our silos and our competitiveness and our self-interest dominate to the point where we don't do the right things.
0: With the rise of uh, high-deductible health plans, Insurance premiums and deductibles are continuing to increase, and this is especially hard on lower and middle-income families, which has caused a rise in the number of medical bankruptcies. Do you see any hope of this changing in the next ten years?
2: Yeah, I do actually. I I think that you know we've done quite a bit of polling on this of both the consumers and employers over the years, and. You know, I think a lot of the dissatisfaction of American healthcare and the frustration of doctors, by the way, who have to deal with the consequences of this, has to do with rising out-of-pocket costs. I mean, we actually ask doctors what, what drives you nuts, and you know, the government drives them nuts, but you know, electronic health records drive them nuts if they're not done right. But high deductible healthcare also drives them crazy because they have to deal with the consequences of that. So as you say, it's hurt families and it's hurt physicians. And I do think the reason why I'm a little bit hopeful is if you look at the polling of employers, for example, many employers, a majority in surveys we've done, say that they think they may be reaching the limits of cost shifting to their employees. And I think that's encouraging that there's an acknowledgement. It doesn't help, it hasn't stopped them from doing it, let me just say that. I mean, we continue to see rising deductibles and copays, but I think there is a growing realization that it may be counterproductive. And I think when you had David Feinberg on, he was talking about his experience at Geisinger about how to manage the different streams of patients, you know, the high, heavy utilizers. And one of the best ways is to eliminate the burden Financial burden those heavy utilizers feel in terms of accessing their medications. So, I think the policy folk are getting a better understanding, and the payers are getting a better understanding of how skin in the game, to use the colloquial term, could be counterproductive. So, that's encouraging. Now, the problem is we all know, you know, first dollar healthcare coverage is inordinately expensive. And that's why I think you have to box the system in with some kind of budget constraint. Otherwise, it's you're just asking for trouble.
0: Well, Ian, we have taken up a lot of your time today. Can you please provide a closing statement with takeaways for both industry leaders and for the average healthcare consumer? Uh, You may also ask them to follow you on your various social media channels.
2: Okay. Ian Morrison, I'm uh, available on Twitter, at SecCurve, s e c. C U R V E, and my web presence is the eponymous uh, website. I've been on the web uh, one way or another for decades www.ianmorrison.com. Well, let me just say it's been a real pleasure, and I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk about these issues with you today and, and have high regard for you both. I think America is better than the health system we have right now, and we can build a future. I've outlined uh, an approach one might call Medicare Advantage for All, which builds on what we know about the benefits of care coordination and integration in terms of delivery system that recognizes the importance of having some kind of global budgeting framework uh, that insists on having everyone covered one way or another, and that provides payment systems that really reward innovation and outcomes by providing capitation or two-sided risk, to use a technical term, and that we need to encourage all actors, including self-insured employers, to move us towards a system that serves patients better by re-engineering the way we deliver care, redesigning care delivery systems within a budget constraint. I, I think that future is attainable. I think it's politically sustainable, on a bipartisan basis. And I am confident that if we can convene and encourage stakeholders to get to a point of agreement on both design and principles for that future, it's something that will lead us to a health system 10 years from now that is actually delivering on the promise and is consistent with American values. I often say to people, you're not Canadian. I'm married to Canadian. I mean, Canadians are different from Americans. Uh, They describe themselves as unarmed Americans with health insurance. So there's a cultural difference. We've got to design a system in America that's right for Americans. And so it will have and honor many of the values that we hold, including... An appetite for innovation, an appetite for competition, a skepticism about government as the only way to do things. But I do think we have challenges ahead, and that if we don't come together to try and focus uh, our attention on redesigning healthcare for a, an aging baby boom in particular, we're going to regret it. And I think the opportunity is now to have those conversations. And I appreciate the chance to contribute to it,
1: Ian. Thank you again for being on our show today. I love the quote you just said. It's what I will reference many times in the future, that America is better than the healthcare approach we have today. And I also loved your prescient view that if we don't change over the next decade, the impact it's gonna have and the human price that will be paid by our country as a consequence. I can't promise that your Medicare for All approach and the recommendations that you've made along with it will be the ones our nation embraces. But for any of our listeners who thought before today that a solution didn't exist, you have proven them wrong. This has been a lot of fun.
2: Thank you, Robbie, and thank you, Jeremy. Uh, It's been really a pleasure.
1: We hope you enjoyed this podcast and will
0: tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at FixingHealthcarePodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare Breaking the Rules with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.